This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. What a beautiful Lord's Day morning it is. This is so... I was already excited to be here, but to see so many people gathered together on a beautiful Lord's Day like this is so encouraging to me. And uh, this morning, I hope that the message will be edifying and that when we walk away from here, we'll feel encouraged and lifted and uplifted. And uh, Brother Kit's always good about, he'll ask me ahead of time if there's a, he asked all the speakers if there's any song that might fit the lesson. So the song that he led this morning about the love of God was, uh, I felt, fitting uh, as we study this morning. So just keep that message in mind as we go through, and it'll bear itself out. Uh, I just want to get right into it today in the interest of time this morning, and uh, we're going to be continuing our study on Revelation, talking about the church of Ephesus. And the text comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's turn and read that. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God." As we go through these seven churches, what we're going to see are different types of churches facing different species of problems. They had different strengths and weaknesses. And today, we see churches across the world that are going to share some of these personalities, strengths, and weaknesses. And we're able to take these letters and apply them to our church today. Some of them we may be able to relate to. Sometimes we may not be able to relate to them. But there is doctrine, rebukes, correction, and instruction that we can take from these and be encouraged by it. But there's also a warning in each of these churches usually. My goal today is, you know, and going forward through these letters, is to examine their stated strengths and their weaknesses. And let's draw some lessons from those. So with that in mind, I want to examine the church at Ephesus this morning in a little more detail. And we're going to begin with a brief history of the city and church of Ephesus. Ephesus, up here on this map, you can see its location in, uh, in the world. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, which is today modern Turkey. The city was located at the intersection of several major trade routes, and it was a vital commercial center to the Roman Empire. It was prominent enough that one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple of the fertility goddess Diana, was built here. Now, Diana was said to represent the great mother, and it was claimed that she was chaste, beautiful, remarkably intelligent, and adherence to her worship said that she was medicine for the very soul. And as such, she 
knew best how to care for her worshipers, even if they didn't. Diana was the bedrock of Ephesian society, and one simply did not question her. With the commercial success of Ephesus, it indeed seemed that it was a wise thing to worship Diana. But by the New Testament times, the great days of Ephesus' trade were long past. Due to deforestation, dirt washed down from the hills. It clogged their harbor, eventually turning it into this reedy plain that you see over here. Now, that was a problem for a city whose name meant the landing place. By the time Paul arrived on the scene, Ephesus was primed for a fundamental change of identity. Now, there's a lesson that we should remember from this, or take from this. God gives, and God takes away. But when God takes something away, He always has something better in mind if we'll simply let go. Paul didn't focus on an area that was going to be easy. I'm just struck by the fact that you're going to see as we bear this out, I'm thinking about all the stuff that I learned about Ephesus. And he went into probably one of the most difficult places that he could go to start one of his very first churches. And when it comes to that church, they have a very intriguing history. We know more about the church of Ephesus than we know about any of the other seven churches. Now, our story of them begins in Acts chapter 19. And I feel the only way that you can study Ephesus and Revelation is to also study this, uh, this passage in Acts. So when Paul passes through Ephesus and eventually plants a church, so the first thing that happens is he comes across a group of disciples of Jesus there. And do you know what his first question to them was? He says, into what were you baptized? This is just one of many parts in the scripture that talks about baptism's proper place and function. See, these disciples, they claim to believe in Jesus, yet we discover they'd not been properly baptized. And the result was that they had not yet been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now we know, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the sign of our salvation. Listen to what it says. It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us, and He has identified us as His own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything He's promised us. I love this quote up here. Are you a signed or unsigned masterpiece? Baptism leads to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the mark of our salvation. Now, when dealing with salvation, Paul is immediately clarifying that belief alone is not sufficient. Because his first order of business, even before establishing this Ephesian church, was to get these disciples a proper baptism. This is not me speaking, this is Paul. These 12 disciples of Ephesus, they believed Paul. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. They, were, they had previously been baptized according to John's baptism. And they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit for the first time. And you know what immediately happened? The fruits of the Spirit came forth. And they began to speak in tongues... And they began prophesying, and prophesying is inspired preaching in this context. Then, in Acts chapter 19, verse 7, these 12 men, along with Paul, well, they begin to go work in synagogues. 
to persuade more Jewish people to believe. But verses 8 through 9 tell us that there were some who refused the truth of Jesus there because they hardened their hearts. So since that was happening in verse 9, we see the Christians start to meet in the school of Tyrannus which was most likely a Gentile place of learning and philosophy. So Paul met with these Christians there every day, teaching them from the scriptures about Jesus and the gospel. He taught this way in the school of Tyrannus for two years, according to verse 10. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, we see that he spent three years teaching and training the Christians in Ephesus. So Paul did not just preach the gospel and baptize and move on. He spent a significant amount of time to disciple the new Christians. And it was likely that Paul didn't just speak for 30 or 40 minutes. In fact, Paul taught day and night, sometimes late into the night, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 9. You may remember the young man who fell from a window during one of Paul's lessons. Now think about this. If Paul taught the Ephesians for four hours each day, and he did this for three years, that comes to 4,000 380 hours of teaching that Paul provided to the Ephesian Christians. If the average Christian listens to one 40-minute sermon a week, it would take 126 years to receive that same amount of teaching. That's us. But the Ephesians received this much training in just three years. That is amazing. Not only for Paul, but also for the disciples. You had both a willing teacher and a willing audience. Now I ask you, are we willing to take this much teaching in our lives or do we only accept what's convenient for us? Do we have teachers who are willing to dedicate that amount of time to discipling? A lot of people today, they're looking for a fast track to spirituality. But the reality is there's not so much a fast track as there is a time track. The way to grow in the will of God is to spend as much time as possible in the Word of God. The more time you spend in the Word, the more time you mature as a disciple of Christ. It's no wonder then that the church in Ephesus was one of the strongest in the area. This Ephesus was the leader of the churches here. In just three years, they grew into what would take us 126 years to do. In other words, if we were to continue and be satisfied with only what I'm doing this morning, what other men do, we would never receive the preaching that Paul felt was necessary for the establishment of a church. Never in our lifetimes. Not one of us would live that long. That's something to think about. And I want you to think about something else. There is enmity, not peace, between the world and the church. This is so critically important in our society today. You know, eventually we find that the church and its Ephesus grew so much that a riot occurs. So in Acts 19, verses 23 through 41, we see the rebellion of the silversmith Demetrius. He was a maker of idols to the goddess Diana. Now, what he did is he stirred up the other idol craftsmen. He was warning them that their trade and the worship of Diana was in jeopardy because people were turning away from Diana and turning instead to the worship of Jesus Christ. And you'll remember, uh, I, well, I'm not sure I said this, but if I didn't, I'm going to say it now. Ephesus was founded on the twin pillars of commerce or the love of money and false religion. The freedom to live however they wanted with no restrictions. That is what they were founded upon. And Paul's efforts to discredit those things was finally coming to a head. Listen to what Demetrius says in Acts chapter 19, 
verses 25 through 27. Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth, the making of idols. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all of Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So not only is this our craft in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now notice that this is their religion here. It's not about, it's more about money than it is about any religion. You see, their worship, their religion of Diana was a means to a wealthy end. It was their own version of a prosperity gospel. And after Demetrius said these things, a mob formed and they snatched up Paul's traveling companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they made a mad rush into the theater of Ephesus. You can see what it looked like then in the middle and then what it looks like now on uh, your right. So they, Paul, when this happens, he wants to rush in to help. Paul was never bashful about conflict. <laughs> but the church wouldn't let him go. They feared for his life. And as this mob was wreaking havoc in the theater of Ephesus, there was a Jew named Alexander put forth to convince the Gentiles that the Jews, we stand with the mob, they wanted to say, not Paul, because since Paul was a Jew, they figured that Christianity in those days was just another sect of Judaism. In fact, it was only called the way back then. Now, you may remember in another spot a guy named Alexander the coppersmith. He was a man who did significant harm to Paul's ministry, according to 2 Timothy 4, verse 14. I believe this is the same Alexander mentioned here. But when Alexander got up and he tried to speak, this crowd was so out of their minds over money and false religion being challenged that as soon as they saw Alexander was a Jew like Paul, they refused to hear him, even though he was trying to show that he was on their side. And the Jews were trying to get the message out, hey, leave us out of this. We're not those really strict religious adherents. We're, we're a little bit more amiable. We'll compromise with you. Let this lesson be clear. You cannot straddle the fence between the world and your faith. And I see that today in such a fashion as never in my, before in my life. Compromising your faith to try to maintain peace with the world will never work. For example, many who claim to be Christians today are rise, raising up homosexual pastors and priests to try and find some common ground with the world and make peace with them. But it does not work. Not only is there no peace, but now these so-called Christians have compromised their faith. They've made it null and void, of no effect. The Prince of Peace, Jesus, said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword Precisely because while he brings a way to have peace with God, it is not going to bring peace with the world. It will bring enmity. And we have got to remember that. We are not uh, meant to be at peace with this world if we're doing as God would have us to do. Ultimately, it was the town clerk who had nothing to do with any of these folks who eventually restored peace. And he only did so by warning that the mob was in danger of being called into question before the Roman authorities because they had no good reason that they could articulate for why they were tearing stuff up. 
Peace never resulted from Christian compromise. It's not as if the Ephesians said, all right, we'll back off. That did not happen. Only temporary peace was reached. And you know, that was only because the mob felt they were personally in danger. Now, if they thought they could get away with it, I suspect they would have tried to wipe those Christians out. And it would be wise for us to remember that this mob in Acts is still represented in the world today. That mob is out there. They are still tearing society apart, demanding that we shut our mouths and that we do not utter the words of truth in the Bible. But don't you compromise. Do not compromise for the sake of a false sense of peace. The world is not at peace with Christians, and Jesus told us that they aren't intended to be. Some people have the idea, well, it's sinful to, to not have peace with the world. That's not what Jesus said. We're not to go try to cause trouble, but we will live in the midst of it, and that is the way it's going to be. So what is the mark of an effective church? The thing I want you to understand from all this that we're going through is that the level of threat these tradesmen perceived was a direct result of the powerful work of the church at Ephesus. It wasn't because the men were wicked. It was because of what the church was doing. The world has been wicked, is wicked, will remain wicked into the future. And the only thing that will be different is what you and I do as the church. We see it with the church at Ephesus. This church loved Christ. They loved his messenger Paul. They loved the word of God. And they loved their fellow men so much that their efforts to evangelize, to spread the gospel, it so maddened the people of the world that they lost their minds and rioted. When was the last time you saw a church have that effect on a community? I have to say, I don't recall seeing one. It takes a devoted, dedicated belief in something to inspire men to such greatness. This is the power of the Holy Ghost working mightily in a church. This is the testimony of the love that the church bore for Christ and their desire to fulfill his great commission. Now for the Ephesians, this track record of love, zeal, and commitment to bear fruit is why Jesus says in Revelation 2, verses 2 through 3, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. We tend to focus on what these churches did wrong, but don't miss what they did right. How do you feel about standing so firmly on the word of God that it would lead the world to riot against you? Can it be said that we cannot bear them which are evil? Or would people say that we tolerate evil, that we get al go along to get along? Do we test the ways, thoughts, and things of this world against the Bible, calling sin a sin and lies a lie? Or do we seek peace with the world instead? We are not called to blend in to wicked society. We're called to bring transformation to it through the Holy Spirit working mightily through us, and that won't always be a peaceful process. 
that takes patience, labor, and endurance for his name's sake. We do it for Jesus. It earned the Ephesians the praise of the Lord. I want the praise of the Lord for us as well. And I'm one of you. That's a scary thought. I have the unique problem. It's not unique, but I have the problem of I can oftentimes find myself not able to back down from confrontation in the moment, but I hate confrontation nevertheless. Don't like how it makes me feel right here. I got that from my mom. She used to say, I don't like arguing because it just gets your, your stomach in knots. And there may be real danger going forward. It's not easy. It's not something anybody really wants, but it's the reality in which we live. And it's the fact that the Ephesians face that danger and allowed the Holy Spirit to work through them and they challenged the society in which they lived. That is what made them receive the praise of the Lord. Let's do the same. So later on, we find that the torch had to be passed on. In the beginning of Acts 20, Paul leaves Ephesus to visit some other churches in the area. But later in Acts 20, verse 17, he returns to a beach near Ephesus. And from there, he asks the elders of the church to come meet him. Paul's headed toward Jerusalem. He knows he's going to face chains and tribulation there, and he sensed he wouldn't see them again in this life. So in Acts 20, verses 18 through 38, Paul gives his farewell instructions to the leaders of one of the strongest churches in the area. He reminds them all of all the work he's done amongst them. He lets them know that they'll need to get on without him. And he exhorts them to continue in the work that he started and teach the truth of God's word as he had done. Ephesus, there, I didn't add this because of time, but Ephesus had some of the best, besides just Paul, some of the best teaching, the best blessings, the best leaders that a church could ever want. Their teaching, the foundation of doctrine was so good. Even so, Jesus said in Revelation 2, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. The last glimpse we have of Ephesus in the New Testament reveals a church in need of an infusion of new life, because their love had grown cold. And it wasn't just that it had died down over time. No, they left their first love, we're told. When Christ admonishes them, he says, You left. You left your first love. It's no coincidence that in Acts 20, verse 28, Paul reminds the elders that the church is precious. It's been entrusted to their leadership. And Paul's primary concern there was for false teachers. Had they turned their backs? Had they turned to false teachers despite Paul's warnings? Um, had the leaders of the church failed to protect the flock? To what was Christ referring when he said first love? To answer that question, let's look at Revelation 2, verse 5. Jesus says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will rem remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Revelation 2, verse 4 is the problem. Revelation 2, verse 5 is the solution. Christ says they must remember where they came from. They must remember how Paul came and taught them about proper baptism, about how he discipled them, about how they spread the gospel with zeal to the point that a mob rioted. 
They were to remember that over time, the church overthrew a pagan religion with the truth of God's word. But most of all, it was critical that they remember why they grew into the largest and most influential church of Asia in the first place. Because they loved Christ. And from that love for Christ came a life-changing love for their fellow man. That's why I asked Kit to lead that song this morning. They had left that mindset behind. And Jesus told them to repent. Now, repent's a word we hear a lot. But like other common terms, we might struggle to define exactly what it means. Strong's tells us that it means to think differently or reconsider. So the problem with the church at Ephesus isn't merely about their actions. It's about how they think. It's a condition of the heart. It is their heart that is producing wrong actions. Now think about this because the danger for the Ephesians is that they could accidentally just treat the symptom instead of the root cause of the problem. They could go through the motions of acting like they did before. But Christ told them to change how they are thinking about those actions. In the context of leaving their first love, what might this have meant for the Ephesians? Well, had Ephesus turned its love in upon itself only instead of turning it upon others? See, churches do that all the time. Had they lost their ability to inspire a riot and upend an entire culture because the only place they now met was behind closed doors? Had they forgotten that it's not only what type of love we have as a church, but where that love is directed that matters? Had some of them even forgotten to love Christ and their fellow brothers? All of these things could be true. But even if they tried to do those things again, the actions alone would not have met Christ's demand to repent because of the word used for love in this passage. Let me show you. In the Bible, when we study closely, we're going to find that there's actually more than one type of love, two of which matter to this study. First, we have phileo love, which means to be a friend to, to be fond of an individual. It's a personal attachment. It's a matter of sentiment or feeling, and it is chiefly of the heart. It is an emotional love. And it's the root word for things like Philadelphia, brotherly love, philandros, which means you're fond of man. Some people are too fond of man. That's where we get the word philanderer. Philanthropia, fondness of mankind, or that's benevolence. That's where we get our word philanthropy from. Philotechnos, fond of one's children. That's that maternal love for her child. These are all uh, manifestations of the root word phileo. This is the type of love that is common to man that we are all capable of. When we look at the world's measure of love, phileo is as good as it gets. This is the love that our emotions lead most of us to express. This type of love is commonly found in marriage. It's the type of love that would cause one to give money to cure cancer or open an orphanage out of pity, sympathy, or empathy. It's the type of love that a mother has for her child because it's a special love between the mother and the child because it's her child. That same love doesn't extend to every child on the planet. And so it's all a manifestation of phileo love. It's a love we feel. It's a love we feel we can relate to. It's a good love, no doubt, but it is not the type of love Christ was speaking of in Revelation 2, verse 4. Christ demonstrates this 
in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, when he asked Peter if he loves him. Three times Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, and each time Peter says, I phileo love you, Lord. You know I phileo love you, Lord. And finally he gets upset and seems to presume that Jesus doubts that he really loves him, and he says, Lord, you know all things to include that I phileo love you. After this, Jesus relents. But the question is, why did Jesus keep asking that question? The answer is found in a different type of love called agapeo. This means to love in a social or moral sense, and it's chiefly a love of the mind. Jesus and Peter were speaking different words entirely here. The first two times Jesus asked Peter that question, he used agapeo. And when it became clear that this love was beyond Peter's understanding at that point, he relented so that when he asked the third time, he used phileo, the same word that Peter had been using the whole time. When Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He was asking, do you agapeo me? And Peter would respond, he phileo loved Christ. Christ wanted Peter to agapeo love him, not just phileo love him. So what does that mean? That means Jesus wanted a thoughtful love, not just an emotional love. The implication here is that while love driven by emotions is good, love that is decided upon, regardless of circumstance or lovability or how we feel, is the superior type of love. Now in Revelation 2 verse 4, Jesus uses a similar word for love, agape. This comes from agapeo. And it has the same essential impact on the text. It means a love feast or a feast of charity. And like Peter, the Ephesians, when we see them in Revelation, were perhaps loving with phileo love because their actions were still commendable as we saw. But in their hearts, there was no agape love behind those actions any longer. Apparently, there had been at one time, but they had left it. Now, if you want to truly understand what the Ephesians had done wrong, the key is to understand what agape love is. Out of all seven churches, in my opinion, Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, that is the one that's hardest to understand what they did wrong for most people because they never get into this. Turn to John chapter 10, <clears throat> read verses 17 through 18. Jesus says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Agape love is demonstrated here, and from this verse we can define agape as two things. First, it is the love that comes especially and only from God, God the Father. Two, it is a choice. It's not necessarily a feeling. When we practice phileo love, it's something we do in response to being moved by emotion. We might practice philanthropy out of pity and love our children out of a great swelling of emotion. And it's usually the case that when we feel phileo love, it is natural and right. We feel an emotional twinge in our hearts, which is why we give that type of love. And we would probably say that such love is deserved when we look at a wife or a child or someone dying from cancer, and so we act out of phileo love. But when we agape love, we make a choice that transcends emotion just like God does. God is offended by sin. 
He experiences that emotion, we're told. But he loves us in spite of that emotion. You're not driven to express phileo love when you've been wronged or when someone hurts you. It's in those times that a different type of love is required. Love that is a decision made in spite of emotion, that's agape love. Agape love isn't mechanical love. Some people think, well, I don't really love that person. I'm just acting like it. And maybe that is what a lot of people do, thinking they're agape loving, but that's not what it is. It isn't less than phileo love because desired and expected emotional feelings don't always accompany it. But that's what our human hearts tend to tell us, isn't it? Wives, think of your mean husbands. This is the best example for me because I think of my wife, Charity, and me. <laughs> what a struggle it is for her sometimes to love me because I'm not lovable. I'm mean. I get angry. I'm careless. I'm not thoughtful enough. Whatever the case may be, there are many times where I hurt her. And yet, she chooses to love and not just pretend to love, but to fully love regardless of those things. It's a decision that she makes. You see, agape love is in fact greater than phileo love because it is selfless, merciful, unconditional, and freely given. It transcends flawed humanity and it allows transmission of something divine. When we free ourselves to love with agape love, what we end up doing is we're able to love more deeply, we're able to love more truly, and we're able to love more richly because it's not dependent upon something that is flawed, that today might produce a good feeling and tomorrow might produce a bad one. Instead, agape love has its source in God. And while phileo love has its source in flawed and variable things, it's not reliable. It's not a reliable love. Agape isn't the harder love. It's the easier love once you truly understand and submit to it because you're freed from the burden of responding and it's just a standard that you give. That's the type of love that Christ was speaking about. Now I showed you that the word for love in Revelation 2 verse 4 means love feast, agape. If you're hungry and I'm going to feed you, I have two options. I can go to McDonald's and I can get you a cheap burger that would fill your belly enough that you wouldn't starve and it wouldn't break my bank. Or I can go into my pantry and I can take from the best that I have and I can labor in the kitchen and cook it all. I could pour my heart and soul into that feast and give you all that I had and say to you, you eat as much as you want. And if I gave you such a feast and had held nothing back, I would have given you the special things that I normally reserve for myself. In my house is a shelf. It's the highest shelf in the pantry, off in the corner behind everything else. That's where I keep my cereal, <laughs> my cookies or whatever. Because, man, when you have kids, forget about it. You put it too low, the dog will get it. That's my shelf. I'd pull stuff off that shelf even and offer it to you. And if I gave you such a feast, it would cause, it, it would incur considerable expense for me, wouldn't it? God did this when he gave us Jesus. He gave us all of the 
best that he had. That is agape love. That's what we commemorate at this table at the beginning of the week. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If ye agape love me, keep my commandments. Do you really love Christ? Then you obey him. You know the problem with saying, I believe, but I haven't been baptized, to go back to the beginning? It's because baptism is a matter of obedience. Is that where your salvation actually happens? Is that it? No. There's more than one part. Belief is required. We are saved by faith and belief in Jesus, but it's coupled with, you prove that love by taking this first step of obedience, get yourself baptized. You see, if you agape love me, you will keep my commandments. If you don't agape love me, and you're just taken by a swell of emotion because some preacher really preached a good sermon, then you're going to say, I believe in Jesus, but... I don't want to change my clothes. I don't want to get wet. I don't want to do that. It's embarrassing. It's not necessary. Luke 6, 35. But agape, love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. And ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. You see, it comes from God. 1 John 4, verses 20 through 21, If a man say, I agape love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that agape loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he agape love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who agape loveth God, agape love his brother also. So, when the Ephesians left their first love, they caused a chain reaction that they weren't aware of. Somewhere along the way, they failed to love either Jesus or their brothers or lost mankind with agape love. And when one link in that chain is broken, the whole chain is compromised. In the case of the Ephesians, their works indicate that they still believed they were loving and serving God. But apparently the right heart and motives were no longer behind those actions. And as a result, their works, while good acts, weren't enough for God. They were hollow. Revelation 2 verse 5 says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else, or else, I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. For all their good works, for all their grand foundation of sound teaching and preaching, the church at Ephesus was at risk of having their candlestick removed if they didn't change their hearts and return to their first agape love. In other words, they would cease to exist as a church. Now, as the Pharisees demonstrated, a person claiming to be righteous but failing to offer mercy and agape love is a hindrance to the work of God, not a help. Such people undermine God's efforts and they bring reproach, so they have to go. If a church is a light on a hill, but that light is broken and it's no longer shedding light, then God will remove and replace it. <clears throat> Last part of our text is verses 6 and 7. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We're going to discuss the Nicolaitans in a future study, but I want to point out that sadly it would appear the church at Ephesus failed to hear. They failed to return to their first love. 
they failed to take it to heart. It took many centuries for them to completely disappear, but disappear they did. And today, Ephesus is just a shell of ruins and the original congregation is long gone. And all of this is because they left their first love. Now, when we talk about and think about how to apply this to the Church of Christ, I would say that we would agree we have a very strong foundation of doctrine. We love the Word of God. We love each other. But we also are not growing many times. And you have to ask yourself, if the Church of Christ is slowly shrinking... What's going on there? Is it a lack of agape love? Is that the lesson that we're meant to take from this? Do we need to look at the first works of the Ephesians and what they were taught and how they applied it and the results that we saw them get? Is that what we need to put our focus on here? Not too long back, Brother Clint gave a lesson on evangelism. And that was the point of his study is that, you know, we are told that if a branch does not produce fruit, it will be cut off. And one of the primary things that we are to do is to show the love of God and to spread the gospel to the whole world without fear, even unto death. And if there were ever a time where the church of Christ, in our essence, were needed in this world, it is today. Look at our society. It is so awful that every day I think it can't possibly get worse, and yet it does, to the point where for the first time in my life, I am, I, I mean, I really mean it. Lord Jesus, come soon. I don't want to be here, but we are. We are, and we'll continue to be as long as the Lord tarries. We are a light set on a hill. We need to demonstrate agape love. And agape love isn't just how you feel about the world. It's about what you do for the world. So in conclusion, consider this question. In leaving behind their first love, what was the church at Ephesus radiating instead? Based on their list of good works that Christ leads with, it may well be that they'd set themselves above their fellow sinful man. To the point that they rightly sat in judgment of sinful ways, but... They failed to reach out to lost men in love. The same way Jesus had reached out to them in his work on the cross. Um, Brother Kayla and I were discussing just the other day, and I confided in him, and I said, you know, I have a hard time lately loving the sinner. I see wicked people, and I'm so disgusted that I just want to say, God, strike them down. That is not right. It's just not right. Hate the sin, love the sinner. That is what we are called to do, and love means preaching the truth. The church at Ephesus certainly wouldn't have believed they were turning their back on Christ. They hadn't turned away from trying to live righteous lives. We see that. They weren't trying to despise the word of God or disobey his commandments, but what did happen apparently is that their hearts hardened toward mankind. That's what happened. And they were no longer effective. They were so disgusted by the evil and the liars and the sinful men that they were failing to love the men just like Christ did because they're no better than these men. And that's the key. I'm no better than the very people I'm thinking God strike them down. Do I want God to strike me down? Would I have wanted him to strike me down in those last seconds before I accepted Jesus? 
Just a couple more seconds, Lord, and I would have believed you, but you struck me down. And he would have been just and right in doing that, perhaps. But he didn't. And so in these last seconds and moments in this world, don't you count anybody out. The most vile, disgusting-looking sinner is precious to God and therefore must be reached by us. That's what the Ephesians had stopped doing. And because they stopped doing that, it was clear to the Lord that they had left their first love. They didn't even love Him the way they used to. And their actions proved it. If ye agape love me, keep my commandments. So here's the critical thing to understand. When we fail to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we fail to love our fellow man, we're failing to love Christ. It's a hard thing to hear, but it's the truth. We are not meant to be behind these closed doors, and that's the only interaction that this congregation has. We're not meant to only associate with one another. We are meant to encourage one another. We're our support group, but what we're meant to do is to go out into the world. That's so hard to do. It's very hard. But we have to decide that we love Christ and our future brothers and sisters in Christ who are not yet saved. We have to decide that we love them enough that we're going to go out when they're most unlovable and love them anyway. Or our candlestick could be removed. What better way to show you love somebody than to teach them the truth and to tell them when they're wrong. Not because you want to be right, but because you want them to be saved. There's a balance that has to be maintained between hating the sin, but loving the sinner. If you haven't been saved, know that this type of love is impossible for you. Agape love comes from God and God alone. It's the fruit of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it is conditioned upon your confession, repentance, acknowledgement of Jesus as the Son of God and your Savior, and then baptism for the remission of sins. If you've already done this, but you've hardened your hearts and you've left your first love, remember what Jesus said. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And if your church is within reach of this message, Remember Jesus' warning, a church without agape love is in danger of having their candlestick removed. Elders, I humbly beseech you to remember Jesus' admonition to Peter, feed my sheep. So if you wish to be baptized or you need the prayers of the church, we stand ready to assist. Come forward to this front bench as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.